Welcome to the Audio Conference for Pastors. This episode is an archived broadcast with our host, Bobby Gilstrap. Bobby is a former pastor, church starter, director of missions, and now the lead missionary and executive director for the Baptist State Convention of Michigan. Now, let's join Bobby and his guests for this archived edition of the Audio Conference for Pastors. Welcome to our Audio Conference for Pastors on Becoming a Healthy Church with our guest, Dr. Daniel Aiken. My name is Bobby Gilstrap, and I'm the host for today's conference. Let me introduce you to our guest for today's conference. Dr. Daniel Aiken is the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is a graduate of Criswell College, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and the University of Texas at Arlington. He has spoken widely across the United States and has traveled internationally on mission trips. He has written numerous books and articles on a variety of topics, including his most recent book, co-written with Dr. Tom Rainer, Vibrant Church, Becoming a Healthy Church in the 21st Century. He is married to the former Charlotte Tammy Bourne and is the father of four sons. Today, Dr. Aiken joins the audio conference for pastors to discuss the relevance of the church today. Our prayer is that we will receive both biblical and practical advice to meet the needs of today's church. Dr. Aiken, thank you so much for joining us, and we want to welcome you to today's audio conference for pastors. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored to be a part of this. Well, we look forward to you uh, helping us to understand better how we can be a vibrant church in today's world and today's society. Let's do this. Uh, Let me give you just a couple of minutes here at the beginning before we jump into our questions and let you kind of set the stage for us. Give us a foundation for what we're going to be discussing today. Well, uh, I love the church. Uh, I'm giving my life to training men and women to serve and minister in the church as well as to see the church expanded uh, around the world through the fulfilling of the Great Commission. And so uh, I have a great interest in the church. I love the church. And at the same time, at this particular moment in our history, certainly in America, I have a lot of concerns because I fear that uh, the church has lost its vision and focus and therefore, we're kind of uh, out there uh, looking for a direction, uh, trying to find a compass, and I fear that we're looking for those answers in uh, the wrong places. And what is desperately needed, uh, once again, is for the church to be rigorously, rigorously biblical. Uh, that would not negate at all uh, the ability to be creative and to do some new and dynamic things. But the question that has to be asked again and again and again is, is what we are doing consistent with God's revelation? And everything has to be run through the uh, purifying waters of the Word of God. And I fear again that, uh, and in my particular denomination, Southern Baptists, we easily uh, gravitate to the pragmatic. And uh, if it seems to work, uh, then it must be uh, correct, it must be right, it must be okay. And uh, that's not a biblical way of thinking. And so when it comes to a vibrant church, uh, a vibrant church has to be a biblical church. And so I think we've got to work really hard once more to ask the question, uh, or perhaps the questions, what does the Bible say and what does the Bible teach concerning the the nature, uh, the mission, uh, and the function of the church? What a great way to think about that. And and it leads us right into our question. So let, let's just jump right into the first question that we've talked about uh, discussing today, Dr. Aiken. Uh, and, and that is, why do we have so many unhealthy churches in our nation? Uh, what, what, is, what has been the, the, the thing that's 
led to the decline uh, of the health and the status of health in our congregations. I think the bottom line is that we have jettisoned both the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. Let me take those one at a time. Uh, tragically, across America, uh, most denominations and, and, and too many churches uh, no longer affirm the full authority, the full truthfulness, uh, the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. And therefore, they are operating from a faulty authority. Uh, for those of us who have uh, committed our lives to Jesus Christ and who live under his lordship, I often have taught my students through the years that uh, what Jesus thinks about everything is how I want to think. And it's very clear that Jesus believed in the absolute authority and truthfulness of the Word of God. And he lived his life accordingly and affirmed it in Matthew 5 and in John 10 and in John 17. And uh, Paul comes right along with the same view of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3 and Peter does in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. And so the first thing is we have jettisoned uh, biblical authority. I mean, without uh, going too far afield, you think about uh, the fact that um, as we are inaugurating a new president, uh, there is a bishop who is an avowed open homosexual uh, voicing the invocation in one of their religious services, and you can't get there uh, without having jettisoned uh, the truthfulness and the authority of the Word of God. Now, for most of us, uh, there's a sense in which I believe, theoretically, we still affirm, oh, I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible is God's Word. Uh, the Bible provides our manual for ministry. But do we really believe that, and does that really flesh out in terms of how we do the church? And that moves us to the question of the sufficiency of Scripture. Is the Bible truly sufficient to provide for us the non-negotiables, uh, the principles, uh, the parameters and guidelines whereby we will function uh, as the church. Uh, I'm a Baptist, and so as a Baptist, I am very much committed to the absolute sufficiency of the Bible. And furthermore, I'm committed to trying to build and trying to plant what I would call New Testament churches, that is, churches that do reflect uh, the clear teachings of the Bible. And so when you then move into the Bible as your authority, you'll receive and you'll discover some very clear uh, non-negotiables that will characterize a New Testament church. And again, I think the reason we have so many unhealthy churches is that we're not operating uh, within the sufficiency of Scripture. We're not asking uh, again and again and again, what does the Bible say about the church? And if we could get back to that, uh, for example, uh, when I have taught ecclesiology here at uh, the seminary, uh, the first thing I do is I ask, what are the biblical texts that provide the foundation for thinking about the church? And we do a verse-by-verse -verse study of Matthew 16, 13-20, where Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Uh, we move to Acts 2. 40 through 47, where you have the birthday of the church, and we look at what characterized uh, the church as it uh, began there in Jerusalem. Uh, we move to uh, a text like Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through 16, which lays out in uh, a beautiful 
uh, uh, way, uh, what the church is to believe and how the church is to behave. Uh, I will take them again to a text like First um, uh, Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. Uh, I remember Chuck Swindoll one day saying, this is the church that has all the right stuff. And so you examine those ten verses in First Thessalonians chapter 1, and you begin to see certain non-negotiable uh, patterns and certain non-negotiable ministries and certain non-negotiable elements that should characterize any church, anywhere, any place, any time. And again, that does not keep us from uh, being uh, contextually relevant and asking how can we best do these things in the particular location that we find ourselves, whether it be in America or around the world, those questions certainly should be asked. But those questions are not the first questions. Those questions are second questions. And again, I fear too often we flip that, and the first thing we ask is, well, what can we do to build a crowd? What can we do to reach people, what can we do to bring people together, what can we do that will not only get them uh, here, but will keep them coming. And those are not bad questions, although if they become questions in and of themselves, I think they become bad questions. But those should not be the first questions that we ask when we're trying to answer the question, what does a Christ-honoring New Testament church look like? So kind of in a nutshell then, what you're saying basically is that the status of our churches being unhealthy now, so many of our churches being unhealthy, just kind of in a nutshell is the decline of really building the ministries and so forth upon biblical principles. You're not saying don't be relevant, but you're saying that too many times our churches have moved away and done other things other than stick to those those primary essentials or non-negotiables, as you said. Absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, if you're not relevant, then you're irrelevant, and uh, you're really not of much use. But that uh, particular um, criterion and category gets thrown around, in my judgment, uh, in a sloppy way many times. So let's back up again and look at this question more once more, and I'm going to be very precise. Why do we have so many unhealthy churches in our nation? I think the primary reason is we have lost a word-based ministry. Uh, I do not believe that you can build a healthy church over many decades without the primacy of a word-based ministry where you are exegeting and expounding the Word of God week after week after week after week. Uh, here at Southeastern Seminary, uh, we basically say there's one model for preaching, and it is expository preaching. That is preaching through books of the Bible, preaching through chapters of those books. In fact, I like to say it this way. We're to preach the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and word by word, and if we have a word-based ministry, then there is the foundation for building a healthy New Testament church. Well, as a result of having lost uh, a word-based ministry, I fear that we've lost the gospel. And uh, I think that if we were to leave where we are right now, uh, go out into the streets of our particular city, oh, I'll make it even uh, more tragic than that, just go visit any church of your choosing this coming weekend and begin to survey people and just ask the very basic question, what do you believe is the gospel? And I think we would be 
scandalized. I think we would be absolutely terrified uh, and horrified at the answers that we'd, we would receive because today many people uh, equate the gospel uh, with self-esteem. Well, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel at all. And so we've lost the gospel because we've lost a word-based ministry. And once that happens, then again, uh, the Pandora's box is open, if you like, for anything and everything uh, to enter into what we call the church. And when you examine it by the criteria of Scripture, you have to come away saying, at best, this is a defective church if it's a church at all. Well, and it's, an, and it's experientially driven. Is Absolutely. That's a great way of yeah. saying it. Yeah, okay. Now, we, we really transitioned right into our second question, if our participants hadn't picked up on that. But our second question was, why do we need that recovery of a word-based ministry? And I think you've defined that pretty well, uh, of, of needing to build build our ministries and build our our, uh, our whatever we do as far as programming and everything else built upon uh, the Word of God, and especially... Uh, the high level, I believe you would probably agree, the high level of biblical illiteracy in many of our churches, uh, e- even in our, our younger people and in, in developing and growing them up, oftentimes there's an illiteracy of even the basic uh, concepts and stories and that kind of thing from Scripture that uh, need to be taught, and then uh, same thing among adults, I think. Well, George Barna has said, and uh, I don't agree always with his uh, proposed solutions, but I am appreciative of the uh, research that he does. And George Barna has said in a very concise way, uh, most Christians don't uh, act like Jesus because they don't think like Jesus. And I think he is correct. And, of course, the reason that most Christians don't think like Jesus is they don't know Jesus very well. And the reason they don't know Jesus very well is they do not know the Word of God. Uh, Just last week, he came out with a uh, survey that pointed out that among evangelicals, those who believe that you are saved uh, by faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, uh, almost half of them, number one, believe that Jesus committed sin while he was on the earth. And secondly, they also believe that though they are saved by faith in the work of Christ, they also believe it is possible to work your way to salvation with a large number of them even believing it is possible to work your way to salvation through other non-Christian religions. Well, that is just mind-boggling. And, and, and you know, it's, it's one thing if you told me, well, that's what people out in the culture think. But he was surveying people who profess to be evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. Well, the only way you can take a position like those is either, one, to deny the Bible, which they're saying they don't do, or secondly, you just don't know the Bible, and to build upon that, uh, biblical illiteracy, which is rampant among our churches, I could not agree with you more, it leads to theological illiteracy, so that you can have these disconnected thoughts put side by side, which any uh, reasoning rational, logical analysis would demonstrate you just cannot do. You cannot say, for example, that Jesus is the Lord of my life. I affirm everything that he is and everything that he teaches, and therefore I affirm John fourteen six that he said uh, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, and then put right beside that the proposition, and I also believe it is possible to be saved by some means other than faith, 
in Jesus Christ. That's absolutely illogical, but unfortunately, that is part and partial of our contemporary uh, culture and worldview way of thinking, and tragically, that has made its way into the church. And so I am convinced that why uh, we desperately need a recovery of a word-based ministry is that we need to once again teach our people to think in rigorous biblical categories. We often say uh, here at our seminary we want them to think in a Christian world-viewish kind of a way. And then we also want to help them to see how, as a Christian worldview comes together, how the dots connect, which that then means that they need to be thinking theologically. Now, I do have some um, some encouragement here in that uh, I'm discovering among a younger generation uh, a, a new uh, resolve and hunger, both for expository preaching and, secondly, also uh, for theology. Uh, the students that are now coming to our seminary in particular, uh, they really ha- are not all that impressed. In fact, they're not impressed at all with what we called the seeker movement. In fact, they're actually radically, radically, radically turned off by that. Um, their models and, and their heroes today when it comes to preaching are people like John MacArthur, people like uh, John Piper, people like uh, Mark Dever, uh, Mark Driscoll, Matt Chandler, uh, David Platt. Uh, these are men that are radically committed, one, to biblical expository preaching, and secondly, they're also committed to theology and thinking theologically about issues that confront us day in and day out. In fact, I would add into that context my um, my friend Johnny Hunt, who's now president of the Southern Baptist Convention, who pastors uh, the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. Uh, Johnny, one, is very committed uh, to expository preaching. And secondly, in the last several years, he has come uh, to be absolutely convinced of the necessity of teaching his people theology. And so as a result of that, uh, he shared with me just a couple of years ago that at their summer camp, instead of bringing in uh, some uh, youth speakers, student speakers that, you know, come in with a lot of energy in their T-shirts and blue jeans and, uh, you know, tell a lot of funny stories and, you know, really whip you up into kind of an emotional uh, frenzy, uh, he said, I spent the week myself teaching our students theology. I taught them on the major doctrines of the Bible. I even taught my junior high and high school students uh, what are the five points of Calvinism and how should we think about those things. So I said, well, how did your uh, uh, camp go? He said, well, interesting. He said, first of all, we could not get the kids to go to bed at night, not because they wanted to stay up and play. They wanted to stay up and talk about theology. Secondly, he said, we had more young people trust Christ as their Savior than any other youth camp we've done in all of my years here at the church. He said, thirdly, we have planned to go back to our church, and in the fall and spring, we're going to begin a series of doctrinal studies for our teenagers. Well, it gets better than that. He did that for about a year, and suddenly he was confronted with a significant number of adults who were offended. And uh, when uh, Pastor Johnny said, what's the problem, Uh, their response was, well, why are you teaching our teenagers theology 
and you won't teach us theology. His response was, well, I figured that, you know, you really can't teach an old dog a new trick and that you guys were not interested in all of that. They said, well, why don't you try it out? Well, within a short amount of time, he is having now almost a 1,000 adults every Wednesday night gathering. And what is he doing? He is teaching them nothing but basic biblical theological doctrine. And so I am absolutely convinced that our people will step up uh, to the plate if we raise the bar. They do have a great hunger for theology. The world in which they live does not provide answers. They don't show how the dots connect. And if we would once more rigorously, rigorously, rigorously have a word-based ministry teaching the word and then demonstrating the theology that naturally derives out of the word, I think we could have a real revival of some substance in our churches, something that is desperately, desperately needed across our nation, and in particular, desperately needed in my denomination. I think there's no question that uh, you've hit the nail on the head, especially about those young adults. You you have the front end of, of that millennial generation, and, and their attitudes and their approach to a lot of those things is very different than the previous generations, without any doubt. Let's well, you move know, on to the next question, uh, Dr. Aiken. Uh, mm-hmm. Why do you believe we need uh, recovery of a regenerate church membership? Well, again, I'm a Baptist, and so uh, I believe in a believer's church. And uh, though I have many friends that are in other denominations, for example, that uh, baptize infants into their covenant community, uh, I, I'm in agreement here with John MacArthur uh, they have failed to completely recover the Reformation. And just like in the medieval period, they are filling their churches with baptized unregenerates. And I think that that is a tragedy, and I think it opens the door for all sorts of theological confusion. What I am convinced of is a man must be born again. And you can only be born again by a conscious uh, faith commitment wherein you repent of your sins and place your complete trust and faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, and thereby then have a body of believers that constitute the makeup of a local church. Why do we need the recovery of this again in my particular denomination? Is I fear that we have filled our churches as well, not having baptized them as infants, but in many cases, if I can just you know be brutally honest and self-critical, we bad we 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 have had in our churches we have baptized uh, unregenerate adolescents uh, who were baptized at an early age, uh, in many instances not aware of what they were actually doing, and as a result of that, they have grown up in the church in an unregenerate state. Uh, many of them stay a part of the church uh, in an unregenerate state, and you know. Unregenerate people act and think like unregenerate people. And therefore, if you have a church that is filled with wheat and tares, and again, when Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares, he was not talking about the church. He was talking about how the kingdom would come to fruition between his first and second coming. Uh, If you have a church filled with unregenerate people, then you're going to have a mess on your hands, and the church is not going to be able to function uh, as it ought. Now, let me say this, because I could have offended some people, and I do not wish to. I am not saying that a person cannot be genuinely converted uh, at a young age. 
Uh, God has blessed my wife and me with four sons who are now all in Christian ministry, two on the foreign field serving the Lord. And my twins both trusted Christ when they were about six years old. And I have no doubt, nor do they, that they were genuinely converted at that particular time. I myself committed my life to Christ at 10, and now as a 52-year-old, I can look back with absolute certainty and confidence that I was converted at that particular time. Uh, So I do believe that people can be converted at an early age, but I also believe it is more the exception than the norm. And therefore, we must do a much better job of explaining the gospel and making sure we have the gospel right, then we also must be much more rigorous as we present the gospel and see people respond to the gospel that they really do understand and have truly and genuinely embraced the gospel. And if that is the case, then your church will be filled with people who are believers, who think like believers, at least they should be growing to think more and more like believers, who act like believers, and thereby we provide the the shining, brilliant light to a lost world that Christ intended for his church always to provide. And again, if your church is filled with unbelieving members, which is an oxymoron, your church is going to be seduced by the world, your church is going to be susceptible to false doctrine. Uh, your church is going to be susceptible to carnality. And uh, your church is not going to function very much as Christ intended uh, when he sent the Holy Spirit, birthed the church on Pentecost, left teachers in place to rightly instruct us that we might walk in a way that is holy, God-honoring, and brings glory to his name. And so the recovery of a regenerate church is absolutely essential for the health uh, and the vibrancy of a church. It is a non-negotiable. Hey, let, let me get a little bit pragmatic for a minute. Okay. Because uh, I was a pastor for a long time. We have many pastors, church planters that are in the conference today. And m- my question, I, I, I'm thinking, okay, I look out across my congregation, and, and I, I think we have an issue with unregenerate people who are members for some of the very reasons that you just mentioned. Uh, can you suggest some some uh, uh, practical tips for helping to move through a process to help bring the congregation to the point of understanding, but also making sure that, that we bring our congregations up to the point where it really is a, a regenerate membership, that there aren't people there who have not really met Jesus Christ? Well, I think the first place to start would be, once more, with a word-based ministry whereby you are preaching faithfully week after week uh, the Word of God. Secondly, uh, I believe in, this is where Brian Chappell uh, has been so helpful, I believe in Christ-centered preaching. Uh, I do believe that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. I believe that Genesis to Revelation uh, is all about Jesus. He taught us that. Uh, in uh, John chapter 5, where he said, All the scriptures testify of me, and went on the road to Emmaus, he told the disciples there that the law and the prophets, and then later the law, the prophets, and the writings all testify of me. And so I believe that a word-based ministry will be both expositional and gospel-focused. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that that then means you present the Roman road uh, every time you preach. But I do believe you demonstrate the relevance of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, 
each and every time. And I believe that you can get there from any and every text. Again, uh, Brian Chappell uh, has done this uh, wonderfully well. I would also uh, reference Tim Keller up at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York. I think he has set a wonderful model in this area. Uh, my friend Mark Driscoll, if you listen to him preach, almost without exception in his messages, which usually run over an hour, he will interject at some point the grand redemptive storyline of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, showing how the gospel speaks to that particular text at that particular place in that particular point. So I think one of the things we have to do is week after week after week in a faithful way expound the gospel and show the relevance and the truthfulness of the gospel. Then secondly, practically speaking, I think we have to, if I can say it this way, narrow the front door of the church. And by that I don't mean that we uh, needlessly exclude but Jesus taught us that the way is narrow uh, that leads to life, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and few find the narrow way. And therefore, I think on the front end, we have to do a much better job in terms of dealing with those people at whatever station in life they are who come to us professing Christ or professing to believe the gospel and then begin whatever process your particular church has of becoming a member of that body of believers. And I think, again, when I was a little boy, if you say, well, Danny, when you came to Christ, what happened? Well, uh, on a Sunday night, to have no recollection of the message, but as I came home, I had the most unbelievable weight on my soul that I'd ever felt. I told my mom and dad that I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that Jesus had died for my sins, and I wanted him to be my Lord and my Savior, and my parents dealt with me there. What did they do then? They called the pastor and made an appointment. I went to see my pastor. All he said to me was, this is wonderful. Sunday morning, when we give the invitation, you walk down the aisle. We'll have you sit on the front row. You'll fill out a card. We'll vote on you. We'll let you stand up there. Folks will come by and shake your hand. We'll baptize you a week or so later, and you'll be a part of the church. That was it. That was it. Now, my pastor was a wonderful man, and that was just kind of the standard stock way of doing it in a Baptist church in the South uh, when I was a little boy back in the 1960s and early 70s. But is that really an effective way to deal with someone in terms of making sure that they comprehend the gospel and understand what they are indeed embracing and placing their faith in. No, that's a totally inadequate way of doing it. And so on the front end, we have got to do a much better job in terms of making sure people really understand the gospel, have truly embraced the gospel, and therefore they uh, are not... Uh, deceived, and they're not simply responding to an emotional moment. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Aiken, we're down to about uh, seven or eight minutes, so we need to knock out these last two questions. Okay. And, and there's a lot here, and uh, so I know we're not going to be able to adequately deal with them, but maybe we'll have some questions from our group uh, as follow-ups to these two. Let's talk about uh, why do you believe uh, a need uh, there, there's a need for recovery of church discipline in t- today's church? Well, I believe that the essential marks of the church, I agree with the Reformers that uh, you must begin with the word rightly preached, 
And, uh, of course, Luther and Calvin uh, called them the sacraments, but I would say the ordinance is properly administered. And then uh, following that is a regenerate church and a disciplined church. And I believe that an essential mark of the church is a disciplined body. Now, on the positive side, that means a church that is discipling, a church that is uh, maturing people to be little Christ, following in the likeness of our Savior. But that also means that we take very seriously uh, the holiness of God. We take very seriously the commands of Scripture. And, of course, Jesus spoke to church discipline in Matthew 18. Paul speaks to church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, again in 2 Corinthians 2, again in Titus chapter 3. And they are very clear that church discipline should be, and I want to make this real clear, should be a natural, normal part of the church. In other words, is it something that we raise to a very high visible level that we kind of swing around like a club? Not at all. But it should just be the normal part of the body loving one another and taking care of one another. And again, if you don't have both regenerate church membership and a disciplined church, I have to confess, my ecclesiology of congregationalism will not work. It will absolutely be a disaster. And, but again, I think they're both cardinal marks uh, revealed in Scripture of what the church must be. And so again, I recognize that perhaps 100 years ago there were abuses in this area, but I have to be honest with you, I am not aware today of any church on the planet that I would say, yes, I have seen a church that is administering and practicing church discipline in an unhealthy and in an inappropriate fashion. What I'm actually observing is churches that don't practice it at all, and it has been to their great detriment and to the harm of the body. Let's move on to question five, then we may come back and recycle some more on the issue of church discipline, because okay. I know there are probably some questions on that. But, uh, but let's talk about the essentials and non-negotiables for faithful biblical ministry. Well, in a sense, I just answered that. First of all, the word. Uh, a word-based ministry. My, my uh, uh, friend Mark Dever, who pastors uh, Capitol Hill Church in uh, Washington, D.C., right behind the Supreme Court, has written a great book called The Nine Marks of the Church. And uh, he begins by saying the first non-negotiable essential mark of the church is the word rightly preached. And he goes on to make, I think, a a very strong, in fact, I don't think it can be countered, a very strong argument for uh, an expository model of preaching where you're teaching the whole counsel of the Word of God. I also believe that when you look at the early church, that the ordinances were very, very important, very sacred, because the ordinances are visible proclamations of the gospel, and therefore baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, should be not uh, something that is tacked on either at the beginning of a service or the end of a service, which again, tragically, as a little boy, uh, that's what it was for us. Baptism was something you just stuck on at the beginning, and the Lord's Supper was something we did like clockwork every quarter, and it was tacked on at the end, which meant we stayed at church an additional 15 to 20 minutes, uh, which for a little boy was no delight in that. And it also just de-emphasized for me 
the significance of what it's all about. And so I think the ordinances have to once again receive the primacy that they had in the life of the early church. And then again, the fact that the church should be a body of believers, people who have made a conscious uh, confession of faith in Jesus Christ, who have pledged to live under his lordship and to be a vital part of his body. And then a disciplined body that, again, out of love, uh, looks to itself, as Galatians 6 says, first, uh, lest we stumble, but out of love we confront those who are part of our body, not because we wish to do them harm, but because we wish to help them and prevent them from harming themselves. And when these things come together, then the church is going to function in a healthy way. The one other thing I would add that we haven't talked about, but it's a natural derivative of all of this, that is, I think it is essential for a body of believers to be a great commission people. In other words, they take with deadly seriousness Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and they recognize that they have a spiritual obligation living under the lordship of Jesus Christ to take the gospel not only across the street but to the nations. Uh, I believe a church that has a great commission heart, a great commission vision, and a great commission passion will be a more effective local church when they have on their heart the 1.6 billion people who've never heard the name of Jesus, the 3-plus billion people who have a nominal Christian witness if they have one at all, if they indeed will embrace that great global vision uh, as the marching orders of our Savior, I am convinced that they will do better ministry at home and in their local location. But if all they do, I have so many friends that say, well, my responsibility is to reach my city. Uh, that is true, in part. But Acts 1-8 makes it clear, your responsibility is to reach your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And if your church is not raising up within her midst those who go to the nations, those who catch a vision for the lostness of this world, then your church is defective, your church is incomplete, and your church is not going to be a vibrant church in the truest sense of the word without the nations also being on its heart. Uh, thank you, Dr. Aiken. Uh, appreciate that, and I, I want to go ahead and transition into a question-answer time with our participants, if I can, uh, and uh, see if they have questions they would like to ask. I'm going to open the phone lines up uh, for you to ask questions. I would ask that all of our participants, if you will self-mute your telephone, you can do that on our conference bridge by pressing 4 star, 4 star, that will mute your phone, or you can unmute your phone the same way to ask a question or to make a comment. Your phone may be equipped where you can do that some other way, and that would be fine, but we would ask that you go ahead and uh, mute your phone. And I'm going to unmute uh, the conference bridge at this time. And if all other phones are muted, then we won't have a lot of background noise. So finally, uh, if you have a question or would like to make a comment to Dr. Aiken, uh, we ask that you do us all a favor and give us your name and where you serve before asking your question or making your comment. That way we'll know kind of where you are. And if there's much of a lull, then Dr. Aiken and I will continue our conversation uh, with some of the follow-up uh, questions to what we've already asked. So uh, if someone's ready, uh, if you'll give us your name and ask the first question. 
the problem is, is we take these notes and we act Okay, on if you can speak up, we hear you there in the background, but we can't hear you well. don't have some means of recovering. Yeah. Let's say I, I need to be better. I mean, I keep them, but what happens to them? I lose track of them, you know? Okay, I, I hear somebody, but I think it's somebody just didn't have a muted phone at this point. So, uh, does someone else have a question? If you're on a speakerphone, you'll have to get close to the phone for us. Sorry. That's right. Are you there? No, we were. We just failed to mute. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, somebody have a question for Dr. Eichen then. Yeah, Dr. Eichen, I'd, I'd like to, to let's go ahead and elaborate a little bit more on one of your previous questions. We did have to kind of cut your last tor- last two responses a little short, uh, and then we'll see if we have some other questions that folks would like to ask. Let's back up to that fourth question where we were talking about uh, uh, church discipline. And uh, you made the comment that that should be a natural and normal part of church life. Um, the other comment you made that stood out to me was the fact that it's not that churches have been doing a poor job with that. It's most of them have just not been doing anything at all. Um, in, in your experience and in your observation of America's churches, particularly among Southern Baptists, uh, what what can can you give us a handle on what a church can do where there's absolutely been absolutely no church discipline at all? Most anything has been tolerated, regardless of its uh, of, of its carnal origin. Uh, how can a church start moving toward being more biblically um, uh, based in the sense of, of that church discipline? Well, that is a great question and a very important question pastorally. So let me preface my comments by saying this: uh, a cram course in church discipline will be a disaster. In other words, if your church has not been doing it, you can't suddenly just implement it and think your people are going to embrace it, uh, rejoice in it, and practice it. So the first thing you have to recognize is you have to begin where you are, and most likely it is going to be a slow uh, process that will require uh, significant time investment. It may even take uh, a year or longer maybe even several years, for you to get your people from where they are to where they are both practicing and uh, embracing in a healthy way church discipline. Now, how do you do that? You begin by teaching on it. Uh, You show them uh, in the Bible that Jesus himself addressed this issue first in Matthew chapter 18. And for us to live under his lordship means that we follow his directions and his directives at every point. We then also show them how Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 2 Corinthians 2. And we help them understand that we're not calling the church to be, as I like to say, uh, garbage can inspectors. If you look at the scriptures, the type of sin, uh, and of course all sin is serious, but the kind of sin that church discipline is required uh, is sin that is public, uh, sin that is habitual, uh, sin that is of a very serious nature doing uh, significant damage to the body, and sin that is unrepented of. And if you look at the guidelines found in 1 Corinthians 5 and also in 2 Corinthians 2, it is public sin, unrepentant sin, serious sin, uh, and sin that is ongoing. 
and therefore those are the issues that you have to deal with. I think you also have to realize that tragically we live in an age where the most popular verse in the Bible known to the culture is not John 3.16 any longer, but it's out of Matthew 7 where it says, Judge not, lest you be judged. Well, what you have to help them understand there is Jesus was not talking about clear overt action. In fact, in just a few verses, he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Well, I've never heard a more judgmental statement in all of my life uh, than that. And so it's very clear that Jesus is talking more in terms of attitude and questioning people's hearts. And the fact of the matter is, I don't know your heart. You don't know mine. I don't know why uh, you do what you do. I sometimes don't even know why I do what I do. And those are not the type of things that Paul addresses, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He addresses things that are very open, very visible, very disruptive and hurtful to the body. And what you try to do is help your people come to understand that our negligence in these areas has not been a sign of grace, but actually it has been a demonstration of a lack of love because if we really love these uh, brothers and sisters, at least they profess to be brothers and sisters, then we cannot wink at their sin. We have to go to them in love with the goal of seeing their repentance and seeing their restoration. And our goal is always to bring about repentance and restoration to the body. And Paul makes it very clear in Second Corinthians 2 that the moment there is repentance and actions that demonstrate the genuineness of the repentance, that person is to be restored uh, to the body fellowship. And let me say this, and I'll let you uh, follow up. Restoration to fellowship is not the same thing as restoration to leadership. And I do believe, in particular when it comes to those who lead the church, that their sin, in some instances, is going to remove them from leadership for a significant period of time, and in certain instances, I believe that certain sins on the part of leaders disqualifies them any longer for leadership in the church. Does it disqualify them from being restored to the fellowship? No. But to restoration to leadership, yes, it does. That would be a whole conference in itself, wouldn't it? But uh, uh, betraying that mantle of leadership uh, by by sin like that is a, a huge issue in some churches, I know. Uh, without any question. Well, let's open the lines up again, see if someone else has a, a Any questions, if you'll give us your name and then where you're calling from. All right, don't hear anybody. I have one more follow-up, Dr. Aiken, if I, yes, I could. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago uh, one of the areas that we didn't have in the five questions, but about the spiritual obligation of the Great Commission being a Great Commission people. And uh, if I could refer for just a minute uh, back to the book that you and Dr. Rayner uh, wrote called Vibrant Church, Becoming a Healthy Church in the 21st Century. Uh, this is a book that uh, you two men wrote together for the doctrine study, which Southern Baptists kind of have an emphasis on uh, every year, and that doctrine study is coming up. But in, in, in that, you have a section where you're talking about an assessment. Uh, it's just called an assessment of the marks of a New Testament church and lay out some of those things you mentioned earlier. And in that list, you do talk about missions and evangelism. Uh, and there were four things that you, you talk about 
in that part of of your your writing about is the church acting like the church ought to. Uh, and let me mention those four that I want to ask you to elaborate for a moment. But you talk okay. about wedding evangelism to sound biblical doctrine, training church members as personal evangelists, use a multifaceted approach, and then take the gospel to ethnic groups as a part of missions and evangelism. Unpack that for us a little bit about why that is so essential for a church to be really acting like like the church. Well, let me pick up on the last one in particular. Uh, when you come to the apocalypse, uh, the revelation, and you look at what is going to be the makeup of worshipers around the throne, uh, beautifully is depicted both in chapter 5 and chapter 7 as people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every ethne. Now, it's translated the word nations, but it literally is ethne, every ethnic group there. And so I believe that we should be working very hard now to reflect in our churches what the kingdom is going to look like in heaven, which means there are no barriers in terms of race, uh, our social status, uh, our culture. Uh, We want to see red, yellow, black, white, brown, uh, those of a mixed race background. We want all of them to be a part of the worshiping community of faith. And therefore, one of the things we can do very intentionally is, in our particular location, uh, find those ethnic groups as America continues to draw them in such large numbers. Find a large, significant ethnic group that they feel out of place, uh, they are dislocated, that need to be loved, that need to be helped, that need to be ministered to, and make them one of your priorities in terms of reaching the gospel. Um, There are a number of our international missionaries who have served on the international field in a particular area who have come back to America and intentionally have moved to large urban populations where the same ethnic group that they minister to for 2, 5, 10, 20 years uh, is located now in the States. And I think that's a great strategy for a church to partner with them in trying to reach those ethne, those internationals who now, by God's providence, are on our homeland territory. We, we, we want to reach out there, but at the same time, I also would challenge churches to think seriously about raising up within their members men and women, uh, families, that will take the gospel to the nations. We have a couple of churches right here in Raleigh that have had a number of families come together and those family units, four, five, or six, are not moving to New York City to plant a church. Uh, they're moving to the Middle East. Uh, they're moving to North Africa. They're moving to Asia and to Southeast Asia to plant their lives and to plant a church. And I will tell you, what that is doing for the church here at home is nothing short of extraordinary and remarkable. And again, I would challenge churches to have that Great Commission focus both internationally, around the world, as well as here at home where they find themselves located. Dr. Aiken, thank you so much for your insight today and for your willingness to prepare and also take time uh, to share with us as a a group of pastors and ministers across the country. We appreciate your time and your expertise. I know that we haven't answered all of our questions about how to be a vibrant church, how to be healthy in the 21st century, but my hope is that today's conference has put it 
uh, on the right track for us and leading us uh, as leaders of the church today to help push back the lostness in our culture, reaching people for Christ. So we appreciate you joining us. For our audio conference ministry, I'm Bobby Gilstrap, and we want to thank you again for joining us today for our audio conference for pastors. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Audio Conference for Pastors. Listen to future episodes by visiting audioconferenceforpastors.com or by subscribing on iTunes. An archive of past episodes is also available. Join us next time as we continue to develop leaders to their God-given capacity on the Audio Conference for Pastors.